Um, we are going to spend three weeks in, uh, in James' epistle. This won't be a study of the book of James. There's no way in three weeks we'll be able to tackle that. But uh, in November, we're going to get into our traditional vision provision time of the year, begin talking about uh, what that looks like in the next couple of years. And then we're into Advent. So we have these three weeks in October. Uh, and I love the practical application of the book of James. Uh, it's just really kind of in your face and in a good way and challenging and encouraging in a good way. So I thought I'm just going to take three weeks and we're going to hang out, talk a little bit about godly wisdom out of the book of James. So this morning we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 5 through 15. Uh, if you've ever been at a wedding that I've performed the ceremony, you maybe have heard me tell this story, but it, it, it bears repeating. When uh, Cindy's, my wife's brother, Alan, got married, his father-in-law, when he gave a toast on the night of the wedding... As he was giving his daughter Hope away to Alan, said to Alan, now listen, I'm going to give you this advice. My father-in-law passed it on to me years ago, so I'm passing it on to you, and someday you can pass it on to your future son-in-law should you have daughters. And Alan and Hope have three daughters, so he's going to get to do this. He said, the first time Hope asks you to do something, uh, fix a leaky faucet, or a door is off a hinge, or some, you know, the plunger is needed somewhere, where, whatever the problem is. Just be as excited as you possibly can. Get right after it. Do it with all your might. Thank her for the opportunity to serve her. Do it with great joy and do it completely wrong. <laughs> and she'll never ask you to do another thing. She'll go straight to the yellow pages, which is now dating me. How old I am. She'll go straight to the phone book. She'll call the plumber. She'll call the carpenter. And you'll never have to lift another finger. We all need that kind of wisdom in our lives, don't we? <laughs> we need somebody who's older. Who's kind of run down the road a little bit ahead of us? That's a little bit of a, of a silly example, but every person in this room, no matter how young you may be or how old you may be, we all need wisdom. And as disciples of Jesus, as a community of people who claim to be followers of Jesus, what we really need more than anything else is godly wisdom. And that's what James is going to talk to us about this morning. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 15. Hear the word of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone. Be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we praise your name this morning. We worship and bow down before you. You are the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. 
you spoke and universes came into being. And it's taken mankind thousands of years to put our finger on something that we call the Big Bang. (laughs) You spoke and universes were created. You are an awesome and mighty God. It is appropriate. It is good for us to bow before you this morning. But Father, it is also good for us to understand that you call us as your sons and daughters adopted through Jesus Christ, not as strangers, not as those who should fear your presence, but those who should come as children, come to their father, longing to understand the truth that he holds in his hand, that he shares with his children generously. Father, every person in this room, whether we're a believer in you or not, is in need of wisdom. We look at the challenges in our life, the challenges in this world, whether they're, whether they're big picture issues that, that cause us to fear or whether they're the daily grind that we face uh, moment by moment. Lord, we need your understanding. We need your truth to penetrate our hearts and our lives. And is that for which we pray this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our thoughts, that we would worship you intellectually, that you would, you would literally change our minds with the truth of God this morning. Please don't let my sin stand in the way of what you want us to learn and understand. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would teach us, and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, let me give you the, uh, the sermon in a sentence this morning. It's actually a sermon in two sentences. First sentence is this, God offers his wisdom to his children. Uh, we're going to see that very clearly this morning. That's actually where James starts off in talking about the generosity of God when it comes to wisdom. So that really isn't the question. The question with which we need to wrestle is, will we take him up on his offer? What does it look like for you and for me to walk our lives in the wisdom of God? Now, let me say right off the bat, this is not a one-time deal. This is not pray that God gives you wisdom, and then every moment of every day you have wisdom the rest of your life. James is talking about an attitude of life that carries on day by day, moment by moment. So literally, in any given day, you might pray for wisdom 15 times. You might pray for wisdom 32 times in any given day because in in that particular day, you're faced with lots of different decisions, lots of different issues that are challenging you, and the response you need is a godly response. So this is not a one and done. The lifestyle that James is putting before us this morning is a practice. It's habitual. It's something that gets into our DNA in our relationship with God, in our relationship with others. I think we're going to see that in this text this morning. I have three observations, the first of which is this. There's a need for and a provision of wisdom. According to James, we have a need for wisdom. And according to James, there is a provision for wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously, so on and so forth. If any of you lacks wisdom, I think James is not so much uh, asking a question as he is making a statement. Asking if we lack wisdom is like saying, was anybody in St. Louis really satisfied with the top of the second inning yesterday afternoon? (laughs) The answer to that question is, Tom, that's a stupid statement, but that's a foolish statement because it was a miserable second inning. Right. Well, does anybody need wisdom? Kind of a silly question. Yes. (laughs) We all have a need for wisdom. And James says there's there's a good place to go for that wisdom, and that's going to your father. That's going to God. But clearly... We have a need. Will God provide? Well, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, still in verse 5, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. 
In other words, our Heavenly Father has an abundance of wisdom. He has, if it's in a, if it's in a big pot in this house, you, you could reach into this pot for all of eternity and you never begin to come close to touching the bottom of it. That's how much wisdom God has. And he's not stingy with his wisdom. God isn't kind of holding it close to the vest saying, ah, I might give him a little bit, I might not. God gives generously to all of his children. He loves to share. If you are a parent or a grandparent, especially as your children get older and they begin to actually think you might be able to add two and two and come up with the right answer, and they begin to ask you questions. They begin to say, Mom or Dad, what about this situation? What about that situation? I don't know uh, uh, even a reasonably, moderately decent parent who wouldn't be thrilled to sit down and have that conversation with a child and try to pass on whatever wisdom we may have in our reservoir. Children, you need to learn to ask your mom and dad questions because they love you and they want to provide you with a life that's filled with wisdom. And believe it or not, they actually know a few things that you might want to know someday. Maybe not today, but maybe someday. A good father, a good mother longs to pass on those good gifts to their children. And God is the perfect example of this. Ask God. He gives generously to all. And also notice, not only is he generous, but also says without reproach. In other words, he won't condemn us for asking the question. Sometimes you ask a question. I I was in a seminary class one time. And a professor started out the class, started out the semester by saying, most of the questions you ask will be bad questions. So please don't waste my time with them. If you think you have a good question, you think you have a really intelligent question, and you want to take your chances, so be it. But if it's a bad question, it's going to be a long day for you. Well, how many people do you think ask questions in that, you know, in that classroom? You know, the two or three really foolish guys that thought they knew what they were talking about and found out they didn't. I kept my head down and my mouth shut. I wasn't about to be suffering the reproach of that seminary professor. That's not God. God says, what are your questions? Come on, let's talk. Let you and me sit down. I'm happy to see you. And it's a right for you to ask. The attitude of God and his provision of wisdom is amazing. He will give it joyfully and without reproach. And so James says the responsibility that we have in this equation is to ask without doubting. Look at the first part of verse 6. Let the, let the disciple, let this child of God ask in faith. With no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, which is driven and tossed by the wind. The notion here is that we have faith in believing that when we ask our Father for this gift, He will give it. Now, I think to doubt can mean two different things. The first one I would say it's the doubt of shame or or the doubt of insignificance. And by that I mean sometimes we think, you know, I'd really like to ask God, but gosh, if he knows what I did last week, and I wasn't very good last week, I I didn't behave, I I did some things I shouldn't have, so he certainly isn't going to give me any wisdom this week after the week I had last week. And And we let that shame just stifle our passion to seek our Father's wisdom. Or we might say, I'm just a little guy. I'm just not that important. I'm a little person in the grand scheme of things, and God's got bigger fish to fry, and he, he's not going to take time to give little old me wisdom. Those are both sinful, doubtful notions. And James says, put those in a rearview mirror. Don't doubt in that way. But I also think that doubt can mean we just really want to go a different direction. God has said, I, I want you to go this way. And he said, you know, I really think I want to go this way. And our doubt actually takes on the form of rebellion. And we say, God, I think I know a little bit better. I know you've been around forever. I, I know you've created all there is. But, I'm, you know, this 21st century, I, I've, I've got some things going for me. I got this one. And we tend to doubt because we really don't even want to know the answer. Either of those 
is going to put us in a spot where we won't receive the wisdom that we need from God. So let me just give you a very simple example of this. Talking about living in the 21st century. The sexual expression in our, in our day and age has just, it's almost become, you know, kind of anything and everything. Now, I understand that there are still some mores in our culture that say some things are taboo, but that list is getting pretty short. God's word doesn't have that confusion in it. God's word says that he's the one that created our sexual identity. He's the one that created our sexual drive, and he's given it to us as a gift in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. He didn't do that because he wants to rain on our picnic. He's the one that created it. He did that for us because he wants us to enjoy the fullest expression of that part of our lives. But we in our wisdom in our culture today have said, well, that's nonsensical. I mean, people, if you, if you suggest that to somebody, they almost look at you like, you can't really be that dumb, can you? And we've gone a completely different way. Now, I understand the temptation. You might say, you know what, I'm single, and I just like to I let, be able to like to express myself like that sometimes. Or, you know what, I'm married, and my marriage is very unfulfilling. So I'm looking outside my marriage, and I'm going to follow my own wisdom. But the word of God's very clear. There's no ambiguity here. There's only wisdom for us to receive and embrace or to reject. And that's just one example. We could go through dozens and dozens and dozens of topics. I, just to name a handful, you talk about our relationships with one another. Work. How do, you, how do you address your work ethic? Money that's in your pocket or not in your pocket. Raising kids or being a kid. Individual or collective. God's wisdom abounds. There's a need for wisdom, but God also gives his wisdom generously. And the rest of this passage, the, re- the next two paragraphs in this passage are actually examples of God giving us wisdom because he covers two different topics. He covers the topic of uh, wealth or the lack thereof, and, he, and then he covers the topic of trials and temptations. And what he's doing there is not going, you're like, well, he's talking about wisdom, and now he's talking about money. No, he's showing you how to apply, showing us how to apply his wisdom to that part of our life. So let's look at the first example of God's wisdom, the temporal wealth or the lack thereof. Look at verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the grass and the flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What is James teaching us there about God's wisdom? Well, it's simply this. Neither this world's riches nor poverty in this life will last forever, so don't treat them like they will. So many of us base all of our existence on our material wealth or the lack thereof. And godly wisdom says you're not a temporal being. You weren't created for 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years. You were created to spend eternity with God. And so take note of your earthly circumstances, understanding that they're temporal, and and don't be, if you're well off, and almost everybody in this room, I would imagine, according to the world standards, is very well off. We're we're in the top 2 or 3% of of all the wealth in the world. So I know there's some here that may be below that, but for most people in this room, as far as I can know, that applies to us. And the wisdom, godly wisdom says, don't be pompous. Don't look down on other people because you have wealth in this life. It will be gone in an instant. You need to live a humble life before God. And conversely, if you are a person that doesn't have as much in this life, you don't need to despair. 
You don't need to be anxious because this life is now there is and God is promising you eternity in his presence where your needs will be, you can't even imagine how God's going to meet every need you have forever and ever and ever. So we're called to apply godly wisdom to this area in our life. Um, one, of my, uh, one of my favorite musicians who didn't do a whole lot on his own but wrote a lot of music, a guy named Bruce Hornsby back in the 90s, was, uh, was pretty popular, came up with, with a handful of hits, and one of them was a song called That's the Way It Is. Maybe you've heard that before. And there's the first verse of the song goes like this. Standing in line, marking time, waiting for the welfare, welfare dime because they can't buy a job. They, the, whoever that he's talking about can't find a job anywhere. The man in the silk suit hurries by, but as he catches the poor old lady's eye, just for fun, he says, get a job. Right? That's not godly wisdom. What Hornsby was pointing out, I don't think Bruce Hornsby is a believer as far as I can tell, was the, the godly truth that there are people, and we are tempted, just like anybody else, being a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean we're not tempted. We're going to see that in a minute. We're tempted if we have more to have a smugness about our life that is inappropriate. So wealthy disciples, the difficult task that is before us and why we need godly wisdom so that we will handle the resources of God in light of eternity with humility and generosity. And we also need to understand that we're, we're following in Jesus' footsteps. What God is calling us to in this wisdom is simply to emulate what Jesus did in his life. You go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, you'll read this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. How rich is Jesus? Jesus owns everything. There isn't anything outside of Jesus' ownership. Walmart, he owns it. St. Louis Rams, he owns them, wherever they're going to be next year, right? Southwest Airlines, he owns it. China, he owns it, right? Your soul, he owns it. My soul belongs to him. Everything in the universe belongs to Jesus, and he gave it all up. Why? Because he wanted to purchase your salvation, the one thing you couldn't get on your own. You can gain the whole world. A lot of people have done that. A lot of people throughout history have conquered the world. You might be the person that, that goes out and conquers the world, but at the end of the day, Jesus owns it all. The one thing you can't gain is God's favor through your work and your effort because it always falls short. Jesus gave all of his glory up. He didn't sit in heaven and go, they're not worth it. It's, I, you know, I don't want to get my fingers dirty. I just, I just got them redone in the palace, and I'm kind of comfortable, and all the billions of angels are sitting around praising me. Why would I want to leave this? This is too good. No, Jesus gave it all up. Why? So that you and I could have the one thing we could never have apart from him, salvation. So for those of us that are wealthy by the world's standards, we are to follow Jesus in this. And those disciples that live in poverty are called to rejoice in heaven's future glory. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Why? He need not despair. He need not resent those who have more. Why? Because God has secured your eternity through the gift of the Lord Jesus. So there's godly wisdom applied to temporal wealth or the lack of temporal wealth. But let's talk for a minute about the second one, which is the notion of trials and temptations. Let's talk about trials first. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the, the man, blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Trials are, by definition, challenges that God allows in our pathway that intended purpose is to grow our faith. The intended outcome of this is not evil. We'll come to temptation in just a minute. 
The trial is put there. The test is put there. The challenge is put there in order to do what? In order to sharpen our love for God and grow our discipleship. So an example of this um, would be the persecution of the church. And, and when you think about there are different places in the world where the church is persecuted. You think of uh, you know, the offering we took was because a lot of people are being persecuted in, in the Middle East. Think about places in Africa or North Korea or China. But I want to take a side row for just a second because I've said for years, you know, the, the church in the United States really isn't persecuted. When you think about it, we kind of have a hard time getting our minds around this. But I said that as if I spoke for all of the churches in the United States of America, which I don't. And if you actually look at our country fairly carefully, you will see persecution of the church in several different areas. So I haven't taught you well in this area, so I want to confess that to you this morning. So you remember the shooting in in Charleston last fall, right? And all the outpouring that came, all the outrage that this would happen, all the outpouring of love that came. You know what one of the responses was to the outpouring of all that love? White people burned down black churches in, in South Carolina and in other states in our country. That was the response of hatred. And I am going to stand up and say the church isn't persecuted in the United States and ignore my black brothers and sisters and teach you to do the same thing? God forbid. There is persecution. But maybe closer to home for this particular congregation. The trial is not so much persecution as it is the test of everyday life, whether it's our health, whether it's our our finances, whether it's a relationship with other people. God allows allows the struggle to come into our life because he knows what the struggle is going to do. He knows it's going to deepen our faith. So I want to show you a movie clip here. It lasts about a minute and a half. And I know you're going to be shocked about this, but it's an example out of the world of ice hockey. So I I know that that really, you know, you're you're shocked that I love hockey. Uh, But there's a scene in the movie Miracle, which is about the, the greatest sporting event in my lifetime, which is when the, when the United States beat the Soviet Union in hockey in Lake Placid in 1980 when I was a junior in college. And in this scene, the coach, a guy named Herb Brooks, his team has just lost a warm-up game. I think they were in Norway or Sweden. And it's a couple months before the Olympics, and they played terrible. They played awful. They're playing selfish. The team has a lot of infighting. They're not getting along. They're not pulling all together. And so after the game is over, they've just finished the game, he lines them up on the end of the ice, and they skate mountains. Now, for those of you that don't know much about hockey, that means that you start at one end, you go to the blue line and back, then to the red line and back, then to the other blue line and back, and then all the way to the other end and back. So if you're a really mean coach and you want to make a point with your team at the end of practice, you skate maybe three or four mountains and people are exhausted. Where we're going to pick up in the, in the movie, in the scene, the guy who's in charge of the lights in the arena has gone home, okay? It's dark. And they've probably just completed their, I don't know, 20th mountain. And the coach is trying to use this challenge to make a point. This cannot be a team of common men, because common men go nowhere. You have to be uncommon. Again. Herb, this has gone on long enough. Everybody on that line. Somebody's going to get hurt. Everybody get on that line. Hey. Again. 
again. Herb. Come on, Craig, blow the whistle. Again. Who do you play for? I play for the United States of America. That's all, gentlemen. What did Herb Brooks know? <laughs> he knew that he had some extraordinary young men, but they needed to be trained, they needed to be shaped, they needed to be molded. And once the first one got it, the rest of them understood. And the rest, as we say, is history. God isn't trying to hurt us with trials. God is not trying to deflate our faith when he allows trials to come into our lives. And there are trials in our lives. I look around this room, I, I know a lot of you, I know the trials that are in a, a lot of your lives. I know past trials. Uh, I don't know what future ones may be for us, but I know they'll be there in our lives. And they're very real. If you, if you go to a church and people say, oh, just become a Christian, everything will be okay, don't ever go back to that church. If we ever say that, don't ever come back here. The pain in your life is real. The trials in our life are very real. God is not trying to crush us. He's not trying to destroy us. He's trying to teach us to trust him. And as we trust him, as we walk by faith, as that faith grows deeper and deeper, we become steadfast in that faith, which is the ultimate goal of this. The trials of God are not only intended to grow our faith, but to create a steadfastness that lasts into eternity. Look at how this ends. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The trials we're going through, the end of the story's already been written. The trial's not going to last forever. It's going to be over. I know if you're in the middle of the trial, it feels like it's never going to end, but it's going to be over in the blink of an eye, and God is provided for glory for you and for me, and he knows the best pathway to that is to trust him, and so he allows these in our lives, and godly wisdom says, my faith is going to remain steadfast in trial because I know that I can trust my Father. But there's one other part of this second application, and that is godly wisdom, not only in trials, but in temptation, which is something that's very, very different. I get a little nervous when I hear people talk about trials and temptations as if they were the same thing. They're not. They're radically different, and it's important that we understand that. In verses 13 through 15, James says this, Don't let anyone say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. What James is saying here is we need to know the definition. The definition of, of, of temptation is evil. Evil is anything that goes against the will of God. Evil, if, if, so I'm mad at you. You've, you've done something to me, and so I go around and I gossip about you. And, I, and my, 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 one of our pastors, Eric, is sitting over there. And Eric has made me mad. So I'm going to go over here and tell Joe, let me tell you about Eric and what a really rotten guy he is. That's evil, right? That's yes. Eric's going, yes. That's evil. And Joe's going, yeah, maybe, maybe not. What do you know, right? Okay. 
that he's not really doing that. I'm just teasing. That's evil. That's something that takes away from the glory of God, but it's also something that hurts my brother. And those two things always go together. You can't turn away from the glory of God and be neutral in your behavior. It's always going to hurt somebody. might just be you, but chances are it's going to be other people. And so God says, be careful to understand that temptation is evil, but also know where it comes from. Nobody should say when they're tempted, I'm being tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. We need to understand the source. And if you want to know the source of your temptation, just look in the mirror. The source of my temptation is my own broken heart. It's my own, it's the, the old man that lives within me. It's the, the part that I don't want to let go of in this side of heaven I'm going to wrestle with. I am, I am the, the, the product of my own devices leads to my sin. And James says you need to know where it comes from. It comes from you. So that, you know, that anger towards uh, Eric, even though that's fictitious this morning, but I, but I easily, that could happen to me. And going and talking to somebody else, I can't say, well, if Eric hadn't, hadn't made me mad in the first place, I wouldn't have gossiped about him, so it's not my fault. God says, Tom, that's foolish. That's not godly wisdom. Godly wisdom says it's in your own heart and you got to own it. But he also says you got to know not only the definition, you got not only know where it comes from, but you got to know where it goes. When this self-centered desire, this thought, verse 15, the desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to what? The action. It gives birth to the sin. And what's what's the result of the sin? The result of sin is always death. For the disciple of Jesus, what does that death mean? I think it means losing our love for God and our care for others. What's the antidote? The antidote is to repent. We're actually going to look at that repentance two weeks from now when we look at James chapter 4. James calls us to, to, to walk away from that pattern and to embrace the cross of Christ again and apply it to our lives. Death for the unbeliever is, is something far more significant. It's God allowing you to experience all of eternity outside of his presence, complete separation from God. The antidote for that is exactly the same, repentance and coming to the cross of Christ in faith. James says you need to apply godly wisdom when you are tempted and understand its source so that you can combat it successfully in a way that honors God, in a way that gives life to you and the people around you. See, when I give in to temptation, it doesn't just hurt me, it hurts you. When you give in to temptation, it doesn't just hurt you, it hurts the people around you. It brings death to relationships. There isn't a marriage that's been, that's been broken up that hasn't been broken up because of some kind of sin that we refuse to acknowledge or refuse to let go of. There hasn't been anybody who's ever gotten into financial trouble and tried to steal their way out of it by anything other than sin. And, and the list goes on and on and on. Every, every sin is self-centered. And James says, understand that. Have godly wisdom so that you will be able to reject temptation to stand up under trials and live for the glory of God. So how do we apply this passage this morning? The first is this. I would just suggest that you think about what are maybe the one or two or three areas in your life right now where you need wisdom. So as I said, this is an ongoing thing. It's day in and day out, and it changes. So you may need a lot of godly wisdom in your business right now. You may need a lot of godly wisdom in a friendship you have right now, and you're not quite sure how it's going. You may have, you may have big financial decisions you need to make, and you need godly wisdom. Just, just sit down this afternoon and make a list. Probably right now, one of them's already popped into your head. Probably the one that's in the forefront, you're already going, yeah, I really need some wisdom for X. But where do you go with that? Not just think about it. You need to go to the word of God. We need to study God's word because he makes abundantly clear his wisdom for us. 
They're in a whole lot of, of nebulous gray, kind of figure it out. God's word's very direct in these aspects of day in and day out life. If you don't know where to look in scripture, contact me. Contact one of the other pastors. Contact one of our elders. We'll be happy to walk you through God's word so that you can understand his wisdom. But then we take the initial steps of asking God for wisdom, saying, God, I need wisdom for X, and believing that he will give it. And I would say part of that belief is also sharing it with somebody else. Saying to a brother or sister in Christ, I really need wisdom in this area, and I've prayed for it. I want you to pray for it to me as well, pray with me as well, and then also ask me next week how it's going. And let me see how God's wisdom is being applied to my life. And, and the third application I would give you this morning is this. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the servant leaders of Green Tree. There's a lot of collective wisdom that is needed. There's a lot of godly wisdom that is needed for this congregation. This is a really simple one. Now that we have a home, what kind of neighbor are we going to be? What, what are we going to, how are we going to live? And, I, and by that, don't hear me say we don't care about the greater St. Louis area, but we have a home now. And we have, we have neighbors in, in apartments over there and apartments and condos and townhouses over there. And then, and then just to our south, there's all, a whole bunch of houses in that neighborhood. What are they going to think about God because of this place? That's an important question that needs a lot of godly wisdom. There's lots for us to pray for. Why? Because in all honesty, Alan's father-in-law was wrong, right? Now, I know he was being silly, and he was just having fun with Alan on his wedding day. You know, do it with enthusiasm, do it wrong, so you won't ever be bothered. What was he really saying? Yeah. He was saying, make sure you love my daughter well. I'm just kidding about the do it wrong part. Make sure you love my daughter well. I don't know, it was probably 16, 17 years after they got married that uh, Alan's wife, Hope, collapsed at a youth group function at their church. Terrible heart condition. And Alan, who's a medical doctor, they were 45 minutes away from the hospital. Alan and his partner, who happened to be there, they're both in the leading volunteers in their youth ministry, performed, uh, they tried to uh, resuscitate Hope for 45 minutes all the way to the hospital. And everybody was pretty sure that she was not going to make it. If she did, she would never recover. And 10 days later, she walked out of the hospital. Because Alan had the wisdom to know what to do in that particular moment. The, the challenges you're facing, the trials that you're facing, the temptations that want to eat you up are no less serious than life and death matters. Trust in your father's wisdom. It's there for you. He's generous. He wants to give it to you. It'll bring you life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text because it, it acknowledges the fact that we can get overwhelmed in this world. That we, anybody who lacks wisdom, it's almost a, a silly thing to say. James is really making the point there that, boy, every person needs wisdom. But our Father knows it, and he's not stingy with it. He gives it generously if we will but ask in faith. Thank you, Lord, that, that James immediately followed up with a couple of examples. And maybe this morning, my need for wisdom isn't with wealth. Maybe it might not be with, with a trial or with a particular temptation. Maybe for something separate. But, Lord, thank you that your word speaks to all of our lives. And I pray that this would be a congregation filled with godly wisdom. Your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.